Okay, good morning. Welcome back. Uh, you're doing it. We're getting to the end of the semester, and you have hung in there. So I'm super thankful that you decided to show up this morning. Uh, for the next two weeks, we are going to study the book of Zephaniah. Um, in addition to the commentaries that are written in the front of your study guides, um, I also was super thankful for some sermons that I ran across as I was like searching for extra help on teaching Zephaniah um, that are from Grace PCA in Douglasville, Georgia. The pastors are David Gilbert and Cliff Daniel. And I do not know these men, but I feel like I've got like, I feel like they're new, like extra dads. Like I feel like I've learned so much from them. So there's a series of, I think, 11 sermons on the book of Zephaniah. Um, and they are excellent. And if you're interested in, you know what, I'm just going to tell you. you, if you want to listen to them in all of your spare time when we are done and there's all of like the rest of November and December and what are you going to do in January, um, grace-pca.net and they're great if you would like to get more on Zephaniah. Okay, but for now, we're going to dive into another one of God's prophets, one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. And as with the others we've studied this semester, some of the main things we learn about are God's mercy and his justice. We're learning about his character. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? The verse that we've come back to time and time again to kind of center us in looking at the justice and mercy of God. So when we turn to Zephaniah, I'd love for you to go ahead and have it open, even either in your Bible or your study guide. Um, one thing we get right off the bat is the most extensive genealogy and background of any prophet. So many of them were just kind of plopped down and you get their words or their story and you don't really know anything about them. But Zephaniah, we get four generations of who his family is. Starting in verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So you get Zephaniah's family line and you get who the king is. So this is pretty cool. Zephaniah's great-great-granddaddy, that Hezekiah, he was a king. He was one of the kings of Judah. And now, when it tells us that the current king is Josiah, and it tells us that his daddy was Ammon, what it assumes is that if you lived in Judah at this time, kind of like we live in the United States, and we can, we can tell you who the the past presidents were, I mean, to a certain point of like when you were born, right? I think I can get to like Carter and then I start to like, mm. um, but they would have been able to tell you who the kings were. So they would have been able to tell you that Josiah's daddy was Ammon and his daddy was um, Manasseh and his daddy was Hezekiah, the same guy. So what we have is the prophet and the king who have come from the same family, like huge family. Were they, you know, doing, uh, you know, Sunday lunch together? I, we don't know. We don't know if they like, grew up together. We don't know how well they knew each other. But the fact remains they're living at the same time. They are interacting and they are family, which is pretty cool. Now, let's keep on moving. Um, Josiah, he is ruling over Judah. 
So we're in the southern kingdom, and for our history here, um, we're at about 620 B.C., okay? So what has happened as we're standing in Judah in the southern kingdom with Zephaniah, okay? What has already happened is that the northern kingdom, remember the kingdoms divided after Solomon, the northern kingdom had a whole lot of really bad kings, only bad kings, and they got judged by a day of the Lord, and Assyria took them off into exile. Where we are standing in history with, Hezekiah, uh, with excuse me, Zephaniah, that happened about 100 years ago. So it has already happened. The northern kingdoms have already been taken off. The southern kingdom stayed intact longer. It had some good kings and some bad kings. The good kings were flawed. But it stayed intact a good bit longer. And... Um, where we are in history, the other thing that hasn't happened yet that's still out there is uh, Nineveh hasn't been destroyed yet. So Assyria has taken away the northern kingdom like we learned about was going to happen um, in Jonah, um, but it hasn't been destroyed yet like was prophesied in Jonah and Nahum. Okay? And so also where we are in history... Um, we look forward also to the southern kingdom falling apart, right? It's still intact right now, but it's not going to be too long, really only like 50 years, until Babylon is going to come and take over and carry them into exile. Does that help with where we are in history? Okay. Now, Josiah's great-granddaddy was a good king. He served the Lord. He tore down places of idol worship. That was always a problem for God's people. But then his son Manasseh ended up being the most evil king. We've heard about him a good bit this semester. He was the one who was building, um, who was sacrificing to idols in the temple of God, who was sacrificing even his own son to the idol uh, Molech in the temple of God. At that point in time, uh, the Bible said that the people of God, not only were they like the, the pagan people around them, they were worse. They were worse. And so we get to this awful point in their history, and amazingly, Manasseh actually repents and turns to the Lord. But sadly, his son follows in his early footsteps, and Ammon, he, he puts back up and keeps back going with evil and idol worship like his father had in the beginning. Well, Ammon was murdered by a conspiracy by his own people, and his son Josiah became king at eight years old. Daddy is murdered, and all of a sudden, he is king at eight years old. An amazing thing happened to King Josiah, that when he was about 16, he began following the Lord. And we don't know if it could have been, it could have been uh, Zephaniah speaking in and calling out. That could have been part of what turned his heart to the Lord. But regardless, God showed grace on Josiah, and Josiah turned to the Lord. At age 16, at age 26, he decided to clean out the temple that had been gathering dust and full of idol worship uh, to, to Molech and Baal and all this. He cleaned it out, and in the process, they found uh, the word of the Lord, which we think was probably the book of Deuteronomy, God's law. And Josiah tore his clothes, and he says, Great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. So he took God seriously. They find God's word. He takes it seriously. He is aware of we have royally messed up, and we deserve God's wrath. So Josiah takes action. 
He tears down all the places of idol worship again. Okay, he gets Judah to celebrate the Passover, which they haven't done in, in um, years and years and years and years. But sadly, while Josiah follows the Lord, all of the people of Judah do not. They don't. They stick with what they've been doing for the most part. 2 Kings 23:25 says, Before him, meaning Josiah, who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Still, the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations which with Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I have removed Israel and I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. So our prophet Zephaniah is speaking into this, the time of this good King Josiah, but a people whose heart is still far away from the Lord. The coming judgment that he prophesies is going to be Babylon coming to destroy them. But one thing that we don't see in this book is that Babylon isn't named specifically here at the beginning. What we see is it's the hand of the Lord reaching out in judgment against the rebellion of his people. So Babylon is going to come and destroy them, and it happened in about 586 B.C., not too long from where we are. So Zephaniah comes, and the words we have in our Bible of what he said to the people, he comes and he comes big and loud, and he intends to get their attention with what he says and what he starts out with. So um, my father-in-law is one of the dearest men you will ever meet, and he cannot hear anything. And this has been going on for quite a while. And this is pr easily 15 years ago. He had a phone tone ring that when his phone rang, <laughs> it started out, he thought it was hilarious. It started out quiet and it says, hey, your phone is ringing. And then we go, hey, your phone is ringing. Hey, your phone is ringing. Hey! Which was hilarious to him when it happened at home. It was not so hilarious when it happened in church one day. Right? Because it got real loud before he could hear it, and then he couldn't find it. Okay? So, Zephaniah is coming and saying, hey, Pay attention. Do I have your attention? And starting in verse 2, this is what he says. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. He is not playing. The image here takes us back to the flood. It takes us back to Noah's days. But really what we see is in a reverse order. What God says he's going to destroy goes in a reverse order of the way he created it. It's almost like this place has gotten so evil that I am dismantling my creation. He is going to wipe away every sin, every drop of sin, every trace of evil. And this is the pronouncement here in these first verses of what's going to happen at the final judgment, of what's going to happen when Jesus comes back, 
of what's going to happen when God is ushering in the time of the new heavens and the new earth where he will have his people all to himself gathered and there will be no more sin. Therefore, the sin has to be destroyed. The earth will be destroyed. 2 Peter 3, 3 through 7 talks about this in a, in a uh, context of the New Testament um, because they lived and we live often like, well, that's not actually going to happen. God's not, I mean, that's, is it really going to happen that he's going to come back and destroy everything and destroy all the sin? Peter says this, uh, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up you, your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So the prophets told you this wasn't going to happen, and so did Jesus. Knowing that, first of all, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished in the flood. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So, a picture of fire here, but Zephaniah is pointing towards the day when Jesus comes back. And the earth, as we know, it will be destroyed. All sin will be absolutely wiped out. But then Zephaniah's word gets personal to God's people. So he starts out big. He starts out at the end of time, all the sin is getting destroyed. And it's going to be like the flood, but worse. But then he brings it home. And now he's talking to his people. He's talking to the people of Judah. He's talking to us. Verse 4. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. Those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Okay. In some of our past prophecies we've talked about this semester, we focused a lot on how evil the people were, right? And they were, um, they were oppressing other people. They were cruel. Uh, they were sacrificing their children. All of that still applies, but where Zephaniah goes here with this and what he says, hey, you people of God, God's people, people of Judah, this is what he's also coming to get rid of. It's a little bit closer to home. Three main things. In the first, he gives three big groups. In the first, he's going, he is against, he is stretching out his hand against the remnant of Baal, the idolatrous priests and the priests, those who worship the sun and the moon and the stars idolatry. He has called them to be his people. He has said, I will love you. I expect you to only love me. This is, this is just you and me and nobody else. And yet you worship other gods. You worship the sun and the moon and the stars. There are priests who are supposed to be priests of the living God who are worshiping idols. 
And there are other priests who maybe haven't started worshiping idols. You know how you see how it says idolatrous priests and and priests. What's that about? Um, they're just not doing anything about it. They're looking around and they're seeing the evil, and they're like, mm, I mean, I don't want to ruffle any feathers, right? Maybe they're just being nice. My husband has a book titled um, "No More, <laughs> No More, Mr. Christian Nice Guy." I meant to bring it, right? Like, it's this smiley, it's this yellow cover with a smiley face with, like, a red line through it. And the, the subheading of the book is, when being nice instead of good hurts women, children, men, and the church. Something like that. When being nice instead of good. So we're going to look around and we're going to see the evil, but, I mean, wouldn't want to hurt anybody's feelings by calling it out. God is not okay with it idolatry. There's a second group, syncretism. This is a word for those who will worship the Lord and also Milcom. So we're going to worship God, but if he's not giving me everything I need, I'm going to also go worship Baal or Milcom to get what I need. I'm just going to cover all my bases. I'm just going to do both. That's called syncretism. God was never okay with that. You shall have no other gods before me. God is the only and the first in our hearts. And then lastly, in verse 6, those who have turned back from following the Lord who do not seek or inquire of him. Practical atheism. Remember, these are the people of God. These are not people who don't know God. These are his own people who are living their day-to-day lives as though he doesn't exist or matter. So y'all, we read about God's people in the Old Testament worshiping idols and bowing down to the sun and the moon and the stars. And really, if we're being honest, we just think it's weird. It's weird. We can't relate to that. We would not do that. We are smarter than that, right? We are more sophisticated than that. But I think something that could help us is to remember that all of this idolatry, the way they were living, the things they were doing, was just their normal. It was how they grew up. It was what their mama did. It was what their grandmama did. It was normal life to them. They were the people of God who lived day-to-day lives that looked something other than, they were looking to something other than God for their security, their identity, their hope, their joy. Their main concern was that things went well for them. I just need my life to be good. And so wherever I need to look to get that, whatever I need to worship, whatever I need to do, that's what I'm going to do. It was normal. So hear me say, their normal looked very different than our normal looks. But essentially, it's exactly the same thing. We worship our comfort and leisure, our financial security, our children, our status. We look for our identity in these things. Our desire for them is disordered. Not that they are bad things, but we want them more than we want God. What is normal for us that we worship other than God? What might shock us that it shouldn't just be normal? It's football season, y'all. Uh, And for an Ole Miss fan, a staggering, I love Ole Miss football, 
don't get me wrong, stepping on my own toes, a staggering amount of money, time, planning, energy goes into cheering for the rebels. It takes up days and days and days and hours and hours, does it not? It takes up lots of money to buy the right outfit and get the food and pay for the tent and buy the tickets and go to the stadium and worship and cheer your heart out. And it's normal. Friends, is it possible? Is it possible that something that is a fun part of life can take over and be exaggerated? That something we're like, I mean, it's just normal. It's just part of living life in Oxford. Does it have a disordered place in your life? Goodness gracious. What about our obsession with our weight? This is one I've struggled with since I was in my mid-30s and my metabolism tanked and I couldn't eat everything I wanted. Is it possible that the amount of time and energy and thought and money we put into losing weight or thinking about if I did lose 10 pounds, I would feel so much better. Is it possible that our identity in the beauty of what our culture tells us we're supposed to look like has made us such idol worshipers? The promise of happiness when I'm just a little bit thinner. Or our obsession with our children being successful and well-liked. Or our obsession with making more money or having nicer things. It's just the normal water that we swim in. It's just the normal of our lives. The normal thoughts that occupy all of the hours of our day. And Zephaniah is saying to them and to us, wake up. Wake up and look around to see if your normal consists of idolatry and syncretism. I love God, but I really, really, really also need my bank account to have a certain number in it so that I can sleep well at night. Or practical atheism. Living a life and not really thinking about him at all between Sunday to Sunday. So once he has our attention... He starts talking, Zephaniah does, about the day of the Lord coming. Because God is not going to put up with all of this. He says he hates it just as much as he hates people burning their children to idols. And there is judgment for it, for people whose hearts do not belong to him. Uh, he starts talking about the day of the Lord. Okay, it's what the prophets were always announcing when they would come each time, whether they use this term or not. It's used more in Zephaniah. When they would come and say, call, call out upon the evil and say, repent and turn and serve the Lord and he'll show mercy. Okay? When they're calling people to repent, they're saying judgment is coming. Zephaniah calls that the day of the Lord. Okay? And there are two different things that Zephaniah is talking about or that prophets are talking about when they talk about the day of the Lord. They were sometimes talking about events, specific events that were happening in history. For example, uh, the Israelites, the northern kingdom, getting destroyed by Assyria and carried into exile. Day of the Lord. That is judgment for their evil that he warns them against, mercifully and repeatedly and uh, patiently called them to turn, and they would not, and a day of the Lord came, and they're taken into exile. 
or the day of the Lord that he's saying is coming for these people when Babylon is going to come and they're going to take over you. And it happens in 586 BC and they get taken over and the temple gets destroyed and there is punishment on a specific time in history. The second thing that they're talking about with the day of the Lord is when Jesus comes back at the end of time. That's called the day of the Lord too. When Jesus comes back and like we saw in the very opening verses, all of the, the sin of all of the world is destroyed. He comes back to make everything right, to fully usher in his kingdom and all of the sin will be destroyed. And they're often described very similarly, described uh, in battle terms and in um, really scary, dark ways. Okay, so let's start reading in verse 7. The day of the Lord is near. And in these few verses right here, uh, Zephaniah is, he's talking about the coming attack of Babylon as a day of judgment, okay? For all of their normal idolatry and corruption. Verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's son, sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their, their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. Again, we see some groups of people who God is stretching out his hand in judgment against. That first group in verses 10, verse 10. Um, those who are arrayed in foreign attire, the king's sons. He is coming and he is saying, your status will not save you. If you are worshiping idols, your status will not save you. And then we have the second group, those wailing from the inhabitants of mortar, uh, that uh, verse 10 through mm, 11. This is, the, this is the upper class. The upper class, the trading class, they are wailing. And it's like Zephaniah is coming and saying, your money won't save you. And then the third group, in verse 12 and 13, you see God himself going out to search Jeru Jerusalem. This picture of God looking through his people for those who are complacent. For those who are complacent. For those who are like, eh, I mean, God's not, not going to really do anything. Complacency hits a little bit closer to home. Maybe makes us squirm a little bit. When we continue reading in verse 14, Zephaniah describes a great day of the Lord, and whether he's talking about Babylon coming to destroy Judah 
or Jesus coming back at the final day. And it kind of looks like both, but it gives this picture of battle. It gives a picture of judgment at the day of the Lord, starting in verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like the dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord and the fire of his jealousy. All the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Oh my goodness. He is going to make a full and sudden end of all of the sin. It's going to all be gone at the end of this day. So, in September, I took my puppy dogs for their regular grooming. They grow hair, they have to get haircuts, they stink, they get a bath. I mean, it costs more than like what I pay to cut the rest of my family's hair altogether but that's fine because you know that's that's what we do um so I had Burf, Buster and Murphy in the car and we're riding over to the place <laughs> and as they do I started to sniff a little like hmm. I was like whoo you guys are nervous they only get in the car to go there they know where we're going when they get in the car somebody's tooting a little bit somebody is nervous and they're tooting you love this don't you we're going to talk about all sorts of things. Um, and we get, as we're getting into the parking lot, I'm like, man, guys, this is like, this is a little over the top. It, and I started thinking, it smells really bad in here. And I parked my car and I called for them to come get the dogs. And I was like, okay, this something's not right. This is not, this is not just a little nervous tooting. And sure enough, I turned around. And on my way back seat, there was a big old pile of poop. Somebody was so nervous that they pooped in the back of my car. Now, in my attempts to not gag while I did it, I went to the little station and got a little baggie that thankfully was right there and got the poop and threw away the poop. Okay. But I did not stop there because even though there is a little, just a little bit of poop left on the, on the car seat. I'm not riding that car with that in there. It is quite enough to make me gag. Just a little is too much. It has to be completely gone. It has to be completely clean to be an environment in which I can exist. Our sin is kind of like poop like the the kindergarten way to talk about it though right because let's be honest if you get poop on you how do you get it off how do you get it off thank you you need water right and soap and something outside of yourself if I'm covered in poop 
I mean, I might could spit a little or something, but there is no way I am ever getting it off of myself, right? I have to have something happen to me from the outside. And y'all, sin is just like that. And we cannot get rid of our sin on our own. We cannot. We can try. We think we can. But we cannot do it. We have to have something from the outside to come and save us and make us clean. Zephaniah calls to the people. He calls and says, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. You are covered in poop. Open your eyes. See that you are. Be disgusted by it. But you can't fix yourself and you can't clean yourself. But God would love to clean you. He would love nothing more than to clean you up so that he can hug you tight. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility, Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. So Zephaniah comes in calling for repentance. He's saying, do I have your attention? Judgment is coming on you for just normal idolatry in your life. It's holding you up. And it is not okay until the very last drop of it is gone. God cannot be close to you. But there is so much hope because we have a God who loves to show mercy. Zephaniah calls God's people, you shameless nation. He's saying, you really are going about living your normal lives of idolatry and your divided hearts and you're ignoring God and you don't even blush about it. I'm trying to get your attention. You are shameless about your sin. He's saying, open your eyes. I'm calling you to see your idolatry for what it is. Hate it and turn away from it. In the midst of God's wrath, there is always mercy. There is always mercy for those who humble themselves, who repent. The seek, uh, repent and seek. Um. Zephaniah comes to them, and he proclaims mercy. He says, if you are humble, God will show mercy. And then the result of that, the response to that, is that you would seek the Lord, that you would look for him. Uh, the seeking here is a singularly focused seeking, kind of like when you lose your phone in your house. <laughs> and... I can't leave my house without my phone. I might as well be naked because I'm not going to know where I'm going or what I'm doing and people aren't going to get in touch with me and I'd rather just not go at all than leave the house without my phone. I'm going to look and look and look and look until I find that thing. The seeking is like that. Zephaniah is saying, look for the Lord. Look for him constantly. 
the seeking, the verb tense is to continuously seek. This is not a picture of, um, I'm a sinner, God shows me mercy, I look to Jesus, and I'm saved, and that's awesome, and that's the end of it. And then, like, I go to heaven later. He's saying, no, 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 no. When you get the mercy, and you're humbled, and you turn, and you seek the Lord, you do it constantly, all day long. Like your phone is lost all the time, and you're always looking for it, and you're determined to find it. It's primary seeking God in our everyday lives. He's saying, seek God, <coughs> learn his commands, trust him, obey him. But y'all, the end phrase of that um, is a little, is a little, um, it can throw us off a little bit, okay? Verse 3, when it says, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility, perhaps you may be hidden. Did that freak y'all out a little bit? Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. What does that, what does perhaps mean? Like, maybe God will show mercy and maybe he won't. I mean, maybe if he's having a good day, he will. And if he's having a bad day, he won't. No. That is not the focus of this, perhaps he will show mercy. Because we know that God always shows mercy. It is a part of his character that does not change, that every time he shows mercy to a humble, repentant sinner. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will trust in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Lamentations 3, 22 through 26. The perhaps is not asking if God is going to show mercy or not. The perhaps is to be the posture of our hearts, of those who are receiving his mercy. It's a call against presumption. It's a call to not say, I deserved to be shown mercy. It's a call to not say, I'm God's child, of course he's going to show me mercy. That because we're his people, he has to save us. That we deserve to be saved. Because, friends, we do not. His mercy is all a gift. Zephaniah is calling them and us to repent and humbly say, God does not have to save me. He doesn't have to. He would be perfectly just if he did not save me. And I paid the wrath and took the wrath and got the punishment for my sin. He would be perfectly just. There would be nothing wrong with that. But God promises mercy. It's who he is, and he loves us. And so it's looking in a posture of, oh, God would show me mercy? Perhaps he doesn't have to. But oh, perhaps that it would be his delight to do that for me. Is a very different posture that the children of the Lord are supposed to have. Maybe that we would even be continuously surprised throughout our lives instead of getting tired of hearing about it, that we are sinners who God loves to show mercy. That every time we would think, oh, perhaps he would save me. 
that crazy? All sin receives wrath. Y'all, God shows us mercy, but it does not mean that he is looking at our sin and the poop on us, and he is saying, oh, never mind. I've decided it's not a big deal. You just get a pass. That's not the way judgment and sin and wrath work. The way it works is the wages of sin is death every single time and always. Sin always requires punishment, just like what goes up must come down. Always, always, always. Therefore, there are two types of people. There are two types of people at the day of the Lord. There are those who arrogantly and self-sufficiently stand apart from God, and they receive the wrath for their sins. They receive the judgment. Those who do not humbly repent. And there are those who humbly repent and are hidden in Jesus. The wrath that we have earned as children of God is not excused. It is not forgotten. It is paid for. It's just paid for by Jesus. God does not, when he looks at us and we hear he forgives our sins, what is happening is that he looks at us and he does not hold us accountable for them because they've already been paid by Jesus. They are paid, just not by us. What good news. So friends, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will who by no means clear the guilty. Let's pray. Lord God, we read these passages about sin and about judgment. And Father, honestly, I confess, so often the posture of my heart is, Lord, I've heard it. I get it. I get it. I don't have to hear about it again. And Father, it exposes my arrogance. Lord God, would you bring humility? Would you bring um, open eyes? Would you help us to see by the words of Zephaniah even that our idolatry is offensive to you, that our normal ways we put so many other things before you, Father, that they justly deserve punishment but Lord, would you not leave us there? Would you please lift our heads to see your mercy? Would you lift our heads to see Jesus? Would you lift our heads to marvel at his willingness to take our wrath so that we can be your children? And Lord, would it change us? Would it make a difference in our lives, Father, that we would seek you, that we would look for you, that we would want to know more and more about and just know you more, a God who would do this for us. We pray that you would do it. In Jesus' name, amen.